This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. We're finishing up our journey through the beautiful main island of Greece and its glorious past full of myths and timeless ideas that have lived and inspired and provoked so many generations over the last 2,000 years. First, we looked at Greek theater in general, but then the contributions of the great playwright Sophocles. Finally, we camped out on the myths surrounding Oedipus and his family, for which Sophocles begins with Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King, or Oedipus Tyrannus, and in the first and probably most famous play of this trilogy. Although, honestly, I guess Jocasta and Laius really started the problem. Last week, we kind of blew through the second play, Oedipus at Colonus, for the purpose of providing a short summary of what happened between the play Oedipus and the play Antigone. And towards the end of the episode last week, we discussed the beginning episodes of the great play Antigone, the play about the headstrong daughter of Oedipus. Indeed, we got to see a lot of Antigone's personality because she's juxtaposed against so many other characters. First, her crummy brothers and Oedipus at Colonus, but primarily her sister Ismene. The plot opens with an immediate conflict that not only starts the plot of this play, but also the most obvious thematic development that is going to really be at the heart of the play from the beginning to the end. And really, that's pretty much where we parked for the entire episode, discussing the idea of higher law. The idea that laws are not arbitrary. They have to be based on something larger than themselves. In the Judeo-Christian tradition of the West, of course, most of our laws are based on the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because that's the part that's shared by Jews and Christians. That's why in the Declaration of Independence, you can hear Thomas Jefferson saying things like, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
Well, they can only be self-evident if you share a common cultural heritage and a common value system with the person that you're looking at something with. And this is where we see Antigone, because she too sees some truths to be self-evident, and they're self-evident not just to her, for, but for everybody else, of her cultural and religious heritage. And what we will see in this episode is that kind of the entire Greek culture have a real respect uh, for the dead. This wasn't just for them a cultural tradition like Christmas or something, but a sacred commitment to their morality. And through that conflict emerges the age-old moral conundrum, the infamous rock in a hard place. Um, Although for Antigone, she doesn't seem to waver a whole lot with any kind of indecision. Antigone is quick to respond. When man's law and God's law conflict, Antigone seems to have made her decision. And that means in this case that she will defy man's law or her uncle's law, no matter the cost. She will not sacrifice her moral code, her commitment to honor and death, and possibly her commitment to her family, even if it costs her life, which he has already said would be the cost of anyone found defying his ruling in this case. Which to me seems pretty noble at first pass, but as we think about it deeper, I feel like it's going to get a little bit more complicated as we kind of think through these issues It is Greek drama (laughs) and tragedy, so yeah, complicated is a good word. Well, here we're going to open up, and she's going to approach her sister and ask her sister to bury their brother. Now, Ismenit is not as dogmatic about her religious faith. In fact, she's a lot more pragmatic. And she's going to look at this thing in a much more grayer kind of way uh, than her sister, both because of her personality, but also she has a better cultural understanding of her place and her world and, and her community. Remember, she's been living in Thebes this whole time, and Antigone has pulled herself out, really, of the community and has been roaming around Greece with her dad kind of as a exile. So she's going to respond to Antigone's invitation to commit treason with a little bit of hesitancy. Basically, she's going to say, we're women. We're, we're nothing. This is not our problem. This is not our responsibility. It's not our fault if the decision isn't a good one. But not only does Antigone disagree with her sister, but she's insulted. And she says, like every sister forever has always said, fine, I didn't want you to come with me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so she goes without her and performs what appears to be some sort of ritual all by herself in the middle of the night. And at the end of this episode, not the episode of the podcast, but the episode of the Greek play, remember, they're also divided into episodes. We have a little bit of a comical scene. I think it's comical because uh, it's a little bit less heavy. This century is going to come in and he's going to tell Creon that Polynices' body has been buried. Although, don't be mistaken, he doesn't mean that they dug a hole six feet and threw it in the ground. By buried, they just sprinkled a little bit of dust on it. And of course, when he says this, Creon loses his mind and something that I found very particular just totally hijacks the death of Polynices, basically saying, someone's trying to take my throne. And with that, the chorus comes in. 
and provides a musical interlude. <laughs> well, and that kind of brings us up to speed uh, to where we're at in terms of plot. In this next episode, the sentry comes back, and this time he's happy to report they have found the perpetrator. She has been caught in the very act, and there is no doubt they saw her not only with the body, but they saw her sprinkling wine three times for her brother's ghost. Which is weird because she'd already done it once, but I don't know. He does have a funny line. He's going to say, and this was a comfort to me and some uneasiness, but it's a good thing to escape from death. It's not a great pleasure to bring death to a friend. And then I love this line. Yet I always say there's nothing so comfortable as your own safe skin. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Basically meaning hate that for you, but better you than me. And he actually says it. That's the kind of thing people think and don't say (laughs) out loud. loud, That's what's funny about it. Well, Antigone isn't going to back down. She doesn't beg for mercy. In fact, she goes absolutely the other way around. She totally aggresses Creon. I dared. It was not God's proclamation. That final justice, that rule as the world below makes no such laws. Your edict king was strong, but all your strength is weakness itself against the immortal, unrecorded laws of God. They were not merely now. They were and they shall be operative forever beyond man utterly. So she kind of gets in his face. And, of course, the chorus has a line like, like father, like daughter. So I had no idea that saying was so old. I know. I wonder how old that saying really is. Like father, like daughter. And they don't mean it as a compliment. I no, don't it was not a compliment. <laughs> okay. Indeed. This leads us to an interesting and ironic speech by Creon. And I want to camp out on this for a minute. Because here we're going to see what perhaps is Antigone's tragic flaw. The problem is she is like her father, and that's good and bad, I guess. She is headstrong, and we're going to see at the end of this play that, in fact, she is a little rash. So let me read this. She has much to learn. The inflexible heart breaks first. The toughest iron cracks first, and the wildest horses bend their necks At the pull of the smallest curb. And of course, that's true. If you can't bend, he's right. Pride in a slave. And of course, he's reminding us the position of a woman at that place. It's not just bad that she's standing up. She's a woman. Who does she think she is? This girl is guilty of a double insolence. Breaking the given laws and boasting of it. Who is the man here? There you go. Who's the man here? She or I, is this crime? If this crime goes unpunished, sister's child or more than sister's child or closer yet in blood, she and her sister win bitter death for this. Man, he went after the sister too. Mm -hmm. Go, some of you. Arrest Ismini. I accuse her equally. Bring her here. You will find her sniffling in the house there. Creon accuses Antigone of being inflexible. And he's going to say correctly that this is pride it is her insistence on absolute individuality and it's really true she only cares about herself and her family's needs and not the needs of the community in which she lived or the social order that they're organized by Uh, but it's important because this is another way of looking at what's going on without and i know it sounds bad to say it like this but there is a sense where you can't totally throw the blame upon creon for this ethical dilemma 
Both of them seem to be sure of the rightness, but even if you are totally sure God himself is on your side, it might serve you well to listen to someone else, even if they're not right, they may have a perspective worth listening to or an idea worth considering or a reason that's not just totally explained by the line, you're just a bad person. That's true, and uh, ironically, he should listen to himself. But many people do have sympathies for Creon, and I've read a lot of literary criticisms that say just that. And I have to be honest, I have a tendency to totally be in Antigone camp 100%. Hmm, Who could have seen that coming? (laughs) I wasn't really open to hearing a different view, but listening to Creon's advice, there is a sense when Creon even can be viewed as maybe not a total schmuck. So here's this guy who has a very, very strong sense of duty to his community. That's a good thing. He may or may not be a confident person. It's hard to tell, but I think it's fairly obvious that he absolutely believes that it's a heavenly, maybe a divine even, ethical duty to protect the city from outside forces. And and I appreciate leaders (laughs) who feel that way. It would be like a contender, like one person in a political party being mad at the current president of the United States. And so in a response, he goes down to Mexico, whips up an army and invades the United States with the Mexican army. You might could see that the president would have ill will toward that competitor. Maybe just a tad. (laughs) So, and if this were to happen, you might could understand that the president at that point would feel obligated to make a strong statement declaring that you can't behave like that, that you can't attack like that. So in some sense, he's trying to say, if you're going to attack Thebes, uh, you better win because if you're unsuccessful, things are going to be so bad, you'll regret even trying. So, uh, in a sense, if you look at it that way, he's not just an arrogant head jerk, uh, although he has a personality of a jerk, but it's kind of an unselfish motive kind of way, if that makes any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm left with the impression that you, at the end, don't approve. Well, I understand it, and I see that what Polynices did uh, wasn't very good. I mean, and and if you're the leader, there's a reason to be angry and upset and threatened. So that's understandable. Okay. Well, Antigone, having more concern for her brother than for her town, does not take into account this position. She wants what she wants. She doesn't indicate in any line any concern for the welfare of Thebes. She doesn't seem to even think about them. In fact, she hasn't even been in Thebes. She's been wandering around Greece for years taking care of her blind father. So what do you think? You have to wonder how she even felt about Thebes. The town, in many ways, really hadn't been that awesome to her. And it seems to me that Sophocles' comments on this little idea of community loyalty versus family or personal loyalty, which is a more complicated question, you might think. I want to bring that up when we get into Creon's argument with his son. But at this point in the play, I have a question for you. Where the heck does Creon get the idea of killing Ismene, too? He just throws that out there for no obvious reason. I know. It's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for that. So if there's a Sophocles scholar out there that can answer that question, shoot us an answer on Instagram or Facebook, because it appears to me that 
Creon just lumps them together quite indiscriminately, like one woman, two women, basically saying, let's get a just get rid of both of these Oedipus girls. I'm sure if one's guilty, they're both guilty. And as many seems kind of glad about that. She doesn't seem to want to be around to deal with all this Oedipus rejection, discrimination on her own. Poor girl, I kind of understand. And then again, after this scene, we're going to have another musical interlude that will end with what to me is a very cryptic comment. It refers to the Oedipus curse and talks about the gods hating pride so much. It says, fate works most for foe with folly's fairest show. That even rhymes in English. Meaning, fate is worse when you're stupid. But what we really don't know is, who are they talking about? Who is the one acting stupidly here? Is it Creon? Is it Antigone? Who's the one acting proud here? Who's the woe that we're going to see show? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You're bad with a rhyme. I know. So uh, I'm going to guess everybody in the audience is set up to make a choice in regarding that question. So, but do you think it could be both of them? Well, that's exactly what I think. And perhaps even the Greek audiences would have already had that determined in their own mind. I really do. I think the point is going to come out really in the next episode where in this scene where Haman barges in. First, we're going to learn, for those of us who aren't Greek and don't already know, that Haman and Antigone are engaged to be married. And when I read this, I went, what the heck? (laughs) Because I kind of didn't see that coming. Haman is an interesting character for this reason. He's the only character that tries to look at the world from the perspective of somebody else and reason with them from their perspective, trying to be kind of balanced about that. And if you remember from what Aristotle has taught us, that's what makes you a person, being able to see things from other people's perspectives. He's going to come in, and the first thing he does is he wants to affirm his father of his affection, of his loyalty, which I think is great because even though he completely and totally disagrees with what his father is doing, that's not the place that he wants to start. He wants to start at a place of unity. I saw that, but I'm not sure it has the intended effect. Creon seems to gloat that Haman is willing to let Antigone die in loyalty to him, which clearly was not Haman's intention when he was trying to appease his father's fear and paranoia about losing his kingdom. Creon is flooded with a fear of not being able to rule Thebes. And here are some of his quotes. How shall I earn the world's obedience? Then he goes on to say, anarchy, anarchy, show me a greater evil. Then he says, this is why cities tumble and the great houses rain down. He can think of nothing worse than losing control of Thebes. Never mind the fact that he does seem to have a low level of respect for women, which I'm sure you picked up on. (laughs) You know I did. Okay, so you've got to love the line, you are right to not lose your head over a woman. You'd have a hellcat in bed and elsewhere. Let her find her husband in hell. Oh, yes, that line did not escape me or any other modern woman reading this play, but I'm letting it pass because, you know, he gets what's coming. What is more interesting in this discussion with Haman for me, and I won't speak for Greek scholars at this point, but for me, my favorite thematic dilemma of the play really emerges from this discussion. 
and it's best expressed in this metaphor Haman uses when describing what wisdom is or what good reasoning will make a person happy. He says this, I beg you, do not be unchangeable. Do not believe that you alone can be right. The man who thinks that, the man who maintains that only he has the power to reason correctly, the gift to speak, the soul, a man like that, when you know him, turns out empty. It is not reason never to yield to reason. In flood time, you can see how some trees bend, and because they bend, even their twigs are safe, while stubborn trees are torn up, roots and all, and the same thing happens in sailing. Make your sheet fast, never slackens, and over you go, head over heels and under, and there's your voyage. Forget you are angry. Let yourself be moved. I know I am young, but please let me say this. The ideal condition would be, I admit, that men should be right by instinct. But since we are all too likely to go astray, the reasonable thing is to learn from those who can teach. It's the metaphor of a bending tree. And I want to go on a little personal tangent here because sometimes books do that for us. They remind us of something personal from our lives and we can hook on to them. And this is one thing uh, that I was able to hook on to from my own life. So I told you before that I grew up in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. And in the days when people really had uh, one or two bathrooms in their home, that was kind of like us. So we had one bathroom that was the bathroom that our whole family uses. And my mother, when I was a little girl, would hang these little pictures on the wall of our bathroom on either side of the sink. And they had these little quotes. And they were lessons that you learn from palm trees. And I always would love them and read them every morning when I brush my teeth. Today, they're actually in our bathroom. Uh, but we never really talked about them. Uh, and just so you know, my uh, my mother died when I was long, so that makes the story a little more emotional because I never got to talk to her about any of these lessons. But this lesson of the bending tree was always there. And in this case, it was a palm tree. This idea that a palm tree can survive in tropical climates where other trees really can't because when hurricanes and tsunamis or whatever come, they're able to bend. They're resilient. They have deep roots and they can bend all the way to the ground, but they never break. And this is the image that you're supposed to have in your mind because this is the problem. And I'm going to say both with Antigone and Creon, they share this. They can't bend. Creon can't bend because he's so afraid the community will stop respecting him So you can think of it that he's thinking communally. He wants to be a good leader. He doesn't want this community to go awry. Antigone doesn't bend because she doesn't view herself as having any obligation to her community at all. She doesn't have an obligation to her sister. She doesn't have an obligation to her uncle. She doesn't have an obligation to her city. She can only think about what she wants, her honor, her dead brother. Creon says, the king is the state. He feels that way and he will not back off. And because he has declared that whoever got caught bearing Polynices must die, Antigone must die. No exceptions. Antigone has all but decided to die. Look upon me, friends, and pity me turning back at the night's edge to say goodbye to the sun that shines for me no longer. Now sleepy death summons me down to Akron. That's the river in the underworld. 
Well, so Haman responds to his father with the line, you wouldst make a good monarch of a desert. Meaning, as I've said many times, you can be right and you can be alone. Uh, leadership is a little more complicated than Creon understands. It's not just about submission and it's not just about being right. And, of course, this is a prophecy and dramatic irony everyone in the audience participates in. Finally, he says, her death will cause another. You will never see my face again. I will say Creon will back down from killing her uh, in front of Haman at the palace, which was what he originally said. He has a new plan. This is his compromise. So he's not a total palm tree, but he's willing to concede. This is what he says. Okay. I'll just lock her living in a vault of stone. <laughs> mm, nice going to say she'll have food. That's fine. Uh, we won't starve her to I mean we won't starve her to death. So he's going to kill her with loneliness. What an idea. It's actually an interesting idea and one that social scientists actually study. Did you know that Great Britain has recently appointed Tracy Crouch to the position of First Minister of Loneliness? Her task is developing an active strategy to engage a growing identified health crisis that actually can be correlated, although not entirely conclusively yet, to a range of significant health hazards, including things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, and even strokes. But it's enough to say it's a real public health concern, this idea of loneliness. So you're saying that that's actually a real thing that can kill people? Are they, of course making it social media thing or anything like that? <laughs> well, this is a tangent uh, and not really the point of the story, but yes, it, it is a real thing. And there is no doubt that technology is a very isolating reality in the modern world. Um, it's actually evolutionary biology to understand that man really is built to live in groups. I mean, your body reacts to isolation and not that you have to be with people all the time, obviously, and different people have different needs, different thresholds. But there are numbers as high as one-fifth of all doctor visits can be attributed to problems associated with loneliness. And the Greeks weren't the only culture that practiced immurement, which is a word you don't hear very often. But immurement is basically burying people alive like this, sealing them up in a tomb. The Persians did it. Uh, probably the most famous that I know of are the Romans who would do this to the Vestal Virgins who violated their vows. Uh, so I will say that of the 1,000 years of Roman history that we know of, they can only find evidence of doing this about the 10 women. So all that to say, it's a cruel, cruel thing to do. And everyone is aware of this. Other cultures practiced it, even including the Egyptians. And uh, modern day psychologists will tell you that isolation is probably the most cruel form of punishment for prisoners. So Creon, although he's acting like this is a moderation, uh, isn't backing down at all. In fact, he's escalating his idea of murdering Antigone in front of Haman. Yeah, that's the subtext there. And uh, we kind of see that Antigone has already experienced a lot of loneliness, and probably so much so that death from this world and an opportunity to be with her family really doesn't sound that bad to her. Uh, she says this, I have been a stranger here in my own land all my life, the blasphemy of my birth has followed me. Poor thing. She says things like, soon I will be with my own again, where Persephone welcomes the thin ghosts underground. So she wants to be welcomed. She wants to see people she cares about or cares about her. 
I shall see my father again, and you, mother, and dearest Polynices, although I never saw him as being very dear, but dearest indeed to me, since it was my hand that washed him clean and poured the ritual wine, and my reward is death before my time, and yet, as men's hearts know, I have done no wrong. I have not sinned before God. Hmm. She sounds pretty definite there. Uh, she has a justification for something she really doesn't mind doing or maybe even fantasizes about, at least in the moment she's alone. I find it interesting that there is no point where Antigone and Haman are together in the play. You have to wonder if she had seen him, if her position would have softened. I mean, could this have changed the direction for this troubled and suffering girl? Antigone is alone pretty much the entire play, and it is this isolation of herself that perhaps drives a lot of her action. And to me, that's part of the tragic flaw. And it's also what makes me really want to sympathize her. You have to think back to Aristotle's purpose of creating pity in the audience and fear. Of course, we all know how it feels to be alone and really feel like there's no hope. And what does a person do in a moment like that? And that's when her daddy's personality really does come out. She's going to have this rash, extreme reaction, if you want to call it that. And maybe that's what, you know, hubris is. But there's more than this, just that. She is rash like her father. She is proud like her father. But she's also a very disconnected little girl. She obviously has a strong moral compass, but that's just not enough. She's been cut off from her family and her community by being with her dad, by the shame of who she is. And I see that as driving her away from two people that they've demonstrated in this play that they actually really do care about her, is many in Haman. And for me, that makes it even more sad, especially for her. She's missing a lot. True. I mean, there's not a whole lot of more dialogue in this play, but you got to love when Tiresias shows up. Tiresias is the kind of guy you never want to see coming your way. He's like, you know, the intercom that comes on from the principal's office and asks you to report. <laughs> Bad news indeed. And in this case, he comes in and saying, I have seen birds. You never want to hear that line. <laughs> Especially with a scared voice. <laughs> yes. But apparently it's through the birds that the gods are saying bad things are happening. And what I like about Tiresias' speech and where I think Sophocles really begins preaching more than he does anywhere than anywhere else in the play. And although I think this play has a lot of preaching in it, he's going to say, think. All men make mistakes. And you remember, Haman has really just said that in that li those last lines that I just read, but he's going to reiterate it here. Think, all men make mistakes, but a good man yields when he knows his course is wrong and repairs the evil. The only crime is pride. Now, we have said this twice now. Haman said it, and now Tiresias has said it. And this is where Creon and Antigone are kind of on the same page. They don't yield. Unlike in Oedipus's case, who had no chance of going back, you can't go back and unkill your dad and unhave children with your mom. <laughs> you just <laughs> but, made that word up. I know. <laughs> but Creon has actually an opportunity to undo the mistake of his life. And, you know, sometimes we don't get that chance, but sometimes we do. Uh, and when you do, you have to decide 
Are you proud enough to stick it out and suffer? And remember, the Greek word for tragic flaw is harmatia, which means missing the mark. So the tragic flaw, missing the mark, is being too proud to change courses, even if publicly you lose. And Creon, for a moment, is just too proud. And look how strangely things unfold. Mm-hmm. It is strange. First, Creon goes back to accusing Tiresias of being bribed, which is just nonsensical. But Tiresias then flat out in plain language, just like he did for Oedipus, outlines Creon's issues. He says, issue number one, you have thrust the child of this world into the living night. Issue number two, you have kept from the gods below the child that is theirs, the one in a grave before her death, the other dead and denied the grave. This is your crime. How strange and ironic. I mean, he buries the alive one and doesn't bury the dead one. (laughs) I know. I guess that's kind of a chiasmus in its own sense. Yes. (laughs) Well, he's going to say, and I love this, Tiresias says, the furies are coming for you. I love the Furies. Ooh, that sounds scary. I mean, is that where we get the word furious? Yes, it's exactly (laughs) where we get the word furious. So the Furious are awesome, horrible, and very female. They're these three goddesses of vengeance, and they punish men for crimes against the natural order. They're particularly interested in revenging murders, but they're very treacherous to kids who've been bad to their parents. So I know. So there's an actual story behind that that and why that's true but it's a little bit um not g-rated so just kids (laughs) no beware if you're bad to your parents we can call down the furies if we need to (laughs) oh oh my what do the furies do once they have been summoned they kill you in all kinds of ways but one of their favorites is to make you crazy which you know (laughs) insane (laughs) women do that uh but if you require a very particular terrible revenge style death Uh, they will most definitely heighten the torment. By the way, they were the first to introduce hair extensions because they had (laughs) snake for hair. (laughs) Okay, I think that's a bit of a reach, but anyway. Oh Well, you know, things could be worse than Oedipus stabbing his eyes out. Mm. Uh, Well, it, it appears to have had the desired effect because when Tiresias says that and walks out, Creon actually seems to reconsider. He says... I will go, bring axes, and servants come with me to the tomb. I buried her. I will set her free. So he repents. Well, he did tell them the Furies are coming. They're scary. And this is where, if you were a modern playwright or movie producer, you would never end this way. Because what happens is we never see what happens. All we know is a messenger is going to come in at the end and let everybody know what happened while we were away. Uh, yeah, and what did happen was awful. Basically, everyone is dead. Antigone hung herself. Haman stabbed himself. And it seems that even in Creon's chance to repent, he screws that up. On his way to save Antigone, uh, he stops and he buries Polynices for the third time. I don't really understand that. I don't know why Polynices need to be buried so many times. I mean, it's not for the gods. I don't think so. I guess he was doing it for himself to say, fine, I would have done it. And maybe that is the proper attitude, but he got the timing out of order because he took so long to get to the tomb. When he gets there, the noose is around Antigone's neck. She's dead, and there's Haman just lying beside her. Creon does try to apologize to Haman, but 
Haman spits in his face, draws his sword, and lunges at his dad. And when he missed his dad, he killed himself. I want to point out something here. And this is a, a picture. I think it's strange and a horrible picture. But Sophocles is very deliberately trying to show this as a bridal bed. Antigone has referred to her deathbed as a bridal bed. And Sophocles is going to try to consummate this marriage with their blood there together mingling. The line is, at last, his bride in the house of the dead. Creon is going to have his revelation, his recognition and revelation, but it will come too late. And just as if, okay, how can it get worse than that? He comes into his house carrying his dead son And he's going to hear what his wife, Eurydice, did when she heard about all this. You did tell us last episode that Greeks have a tendency to kill themselves more than men do. (laughs) Creon will say as he looks at Haemon, I was the fool, not you, and you died for me. And then when they tell him that Eurydice stabbed herself, he also has to learn that her last words were a curse on him. Not good. So the final lines of the play refer back to wisdom. There's no happiness where there's no wisdom. No wisdom but in submission to the gods. Big words are always punished And proud men in old age learn to be wise. And what are we to make of that? I know. I mean, clearly it's talking about wisdom. And this is the kind of where I see this as being a play about Antigone and not necessarily about Creon, with Antigone being the tragic hero. What's her main character flaw? I truly believe it's a lack of patience and wisdom. And let me show off my one year of high school Greek oh my. or a cool article I read about this. But anyway, the Greek have several words for wisdom. And the word that they use in this play is called phrenesis, which means the ability to make judgments regarding how to live well. So clearly it's difficult to make judgments in order to live well. It's just not easy to do because why? You're going to have these existential double binds. People are going to put you between rocks and hard places. You're going to have to balance needs from your family with needs from your community. And there's going to be um, places where they don't seem to just naturally go together. Antigone and Creon both display incredible lack of wisdom clearly creon and he gets what he deserves in that sense he's the focal point really here at the end but the play doesn't carry his name it carries her name and so i refuse really to think about her as being a victim of creon and though obviously she dies and it's his fault but i feel like the play is demonstrating that maybe she did have we do have human agency She used it at the beginning, but then she gave up on it. Was it her pride that made her give up? Was it grief? Was it loneliness? Was it exhaustion? I don't really know, but every winning football coach will tell you, sometimes just being the last man standing is the wisest move of all. I really do wish there could have been Antigone Part 2, because I think if there had been another play, it would have been called Queen Antigone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, that is going to conclude our trip through Antigone. Thanks for being with us. Um, Tell your friends about our podcast. We'd love for them to check in on what we're doing. 
check us out on Facebook, Instagram. Also look at our howtolovelypodcast.com page. We have lots of great information there, especially if you're a classroom teacher. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 